I'm the doctor, by the way. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that's always edited and hopefully to perfection. We're on the trail, as ever, of those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord as played by Paul McGann. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm Matt Michael. You join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines and more. What sort of more are we thinking there, Kenny? Um, more, more, more. How do you like it? How do you like it? Action figures? Yeah, action yeah. figures. I'm actually, I've got an action yeah. figure anecdote for you later on. Oh. Because okay. I bought some earlier today, but that we'll, we'll find out about who I bought and why oh. later on. So there we go. Okay. Interesting. But yes, there's always more. You can always find extra things to hang on. Costumes, for example, as we did yes. a couple of weeks back. Or editing, as we're going to talk about today. Indeed we are, because we're going to be chatting with Patrick Lussier, the man who edited the Doctor Who TV movie. And he's worked with some big names in his career as an editor and a director, including Wes Craven, with whom he worked on the Scream films, Christopher Plummer, Johnny Lee Miller, Scotland's own Gerard Butler, and Christopher Walken. So, Matt, what's your thoughts on the TV movie and how it was edited and how it looked? Because it was a completely different feel from what we'd had previously, wasn't it? It was. I think it look it looks like really good mid-90s American TV, which is not meant as a, a critique in any way. It's it's a decade at least ahead of anything that we'd seen on the BBC Um in the in the sort of 80s it looks fantastic it's edited in a pacey punchy way um the direction and the editing um really nail things like the the thematic dissolves from the doctor and the master's sort of resurrections there's the brilliant eye theme where you've got a sort of fades from eyes to other eyes the whole thing is just a, a step above anything that we'd seen for obvious reasons but it's a step above anything we saw in the bbc episodes and i think it still holds up really well today it's still very very pacey i think if you hear criticisms of the tv movie they tend to focus rightly or wrongly on the plot and the continuity and it's too americanized i've not really ever heard any criticism that it's badly put together at all i think looks wise it's, it's brilliant agreed i mean i think the only doctor who from the 20th century that you could compare the editing and the pace with would be time and the rani and remembrance of the daleks from andrew morgan as they're mm. both very very quickly done and there's some you know quick intercuts in a couple of places with them but yeah. nowhere near what we get in the tv movie which mm. for me is, is sumptuous i mean it's as you say, it's very like 90s American shows of the time, your X-Files and things like that. But also it does feel very filmic, you know, feature film as well. The way that it moves because you've got some really fast cuts and then moving back. And as you say, there's those themes between the eyes and um, the Doctor and the Master both being resurrected at the same time coming back to life and the intercuts. And it's very, very cleverly done. And I think that it's no surprise that Patrick went on to become a director as well. No, absolutely. And I, th- I think there's a real eye for the cinematic elements inside the TARDIS as well. We've never seen any, we've never seen a TARDIS set like that, uh, first and foremost. But really, it sort of brings out the scale of the set. There's those beautiful kind of movement through through the set, the big reveal of the cloister room. It's all beautiful and it really shows off the budget in a way that it would it would be kind of easy sometimes to throw away some of the the detail of the budget because you you don't you don't bring it all out in the edit and you kind of stuff gets lost and I I don't think I think it strikes a really good balance in that there's no pointlessly lingering shots of bits of set just for the sake of it but there's enough sort of detailing in the edit to give you a sense of place and a sense of uh, just a sense of the the size of the set that really helps to sell the fact that this is like a universe inside a, a tiny box 
I think there really isn't a wasted second in terms of the edit because it slows down when it needs to, like the scenes with back in Grace's house when yeah. they're there, and it's sort of just like we've had the doctors escape from the hospital. Meanwhile, the master's been resurrected the night before, whereas the doctor and Grace are in her house, and just it just has that room to breathe, and it's given, and it feels very natural just as the doctor and Grace get to know each other and chat, mm. and he finds them sort of starts to find himself. And you just get that sort of, it feels like morning and it just works its way through and then it builds up again and again. And it's just so cleverly done. And it's a combination of fantastic directing from Jeffrey Sachs and some brilliant editing from Patrick. And you can tell they were working in sync, can't you? There's that symbiosis when you've got people who know what they're doing, they know what they want, and they've managed to work together to get that perfect symbiosis. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think the the sort of visual language of the movie is one of the most successful things about it. I think the design, I really like the design of the film as well. I really like the the design of the Eighth Doctor's costume, given what they were going for, which is a kind of season 14 aesthetic. But I think, I think probably the thing that nearly everybody celebrates about the film is A, Paul McGann, and B, the direction and the editing and the, the just the visual style of it. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it's unique and it's very much sets the tone for what we'd get when Rose aired nine years later. No, absolutely. I, and to be fair, I think it has taken the modern series, the 21st century series, it, it didn't get there in um, the 2005 series. I'm not trying to diss the 2005 series, but that was still TV episodes on a TV budget. This, as you say, is is a more epic movie scale. And I think it took a little while for the 21st century series to quite get to that epic level. It probably took quite an advance in you know CGI and the cost of CGI to be able to replicate that overall look. Yeah. Now, do you remember? when Dracula 2000 came out in the cinemas, which was a film that Patrick later directed. I have seen Dracula 2000 on DVD. I can't remember it coming out of the cinema. Ah, because I do, because I remember buses going past in Glasgow. And so you've got sort of like the cast on it and then directed by Patrick Lucy. And it's like, I know exactly who that is. <laughs> and it's just one of those sort of, you know you're a Doctor Who fan when you recognise names from the TV movie credits and they've done other mm. stuff. So you know you've watched the movie a lot when you recognise that. I always thought it was Lussier, but I discovered it's Lucier. So of course it would be French-Canadian, most likely, yeah. which is fab. But of course, the thing that none of us knew is that Patrick is actually a huge Doctor Who fan. He was before the movie and continued to be afterwards. Did you know this? You saw the episodes on CBC, did he, back in the day? Must have done. But why don't we hear from him now and find out his old memories of the show and then, of course, working on it and what he's been up to more recently. My name is uh, Patrick Lussier. I'm the film editor of Doctor Who the Movie, the 96 uh, TV movie that was made by the BBC and Fox Television before they became evil Fox. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good start. We don't like uh, massive evil empires, so... We're going to go on fine path. Yes, no, God, we're all, we're all, you know, they're all the Daleks that are destroying us. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I suppose... I have a cat that's bellowing at me, so I apologise for Oh, that. this is a podcast <laughs> that loves cats. What's the cat's name? Well, yeah, and, and it's only when I start talking to anybody, you know, uh, in this format, she's like, oh, what about me? <laughs> um, anyways, not to digress. Yeah, but... She'll show up in the background. So Fantastic. So what's her name? We need to know. Kabuki. Kabuki. Oh, there we go. That's I've never yeah, met a Kabuki. Kabuki. There's another one named Willow, but Willow's a real bully, and she's probably napping somewhere. Okay. Well, we'll hope she doesn't come in and attack you and uh, ruin yeah, your interview. Yeah. So all yeah. will be well, I'm sure. Yeah. So before we chat about your career, was Doctor Who something you were aware of before you worked on it? Absolutely. I was. I uh, growing up in Canada, I used to watch. I used to come home from soccer on Saturdays. We'd have soccer games, and I would watch. Doctor Who on the CBC, which was uh, uh, the third Doctor, John Kirkley at the time. So that was the Doctor, I, my first introduction to Doctor Who. And then, of course, we're seeing the episode the, with the three Doctors, and you're like, but wait, there's more? Because there was no you know, internet back then to check anything out. So, But I remember watching you know, uh, all those uh, great 
uh, episodes with him, you know, and the and the and the Damons and and the Humobile and and, uh, and you know his yellow car whipping around with uh, with Joe Grant and, and and Sarah and everybody. So that was my first Doctor. So I, I had always been a fan, and then and then uh, you know, and, uh, watched some Tom Baker, not as much. That was you know that was broadcast a little differently, and then uh, and sort of. Um, the fifth doctor sort of showed up when I was in late high school university and I just, I sort of fell out of it um, until such time as uh, this job came around and then like, oh my God, I would love to do that. It was uh, Pete Ware, the, one of the producers on it who contacted me because he had been working on a couple of movies that I had edited in the sound department. And he said, you know, I need somebody who can do what you can do, given how fast we have to go. Um, would you be interested? And I thought, absolutely. Um, that, and I left the job I was doing, which was <laughs> editing D3, The Mighty Ducks, gladly left that early. And then uh, did uh, cut the Doctor Who movie. And then once we finished, I started cutting Scream I had almost like two weeks later. So it, was, it fit in that window between D3, The Mighty Ducks and Scream. Wow, that's amazing. So what inspired your interest in getting into the film industry and where did you go and study? You know, I I guess like a lot of people, what really, uh, of a certain age, being the age that I am, certainly, uh, that got me into the film industry was, was Star Wars. It was, when Star Wars came out in 77, there was so much information about the making of movies, about how that movie was made. And that was when I, you know, and I was like 12, 13 at the time, began to understand like, oh my God, somebody will pay you to do this. And then started just to focus exactly on that all through high school and university. I tried to get into the Simon Fraser University film program up here. And I was told that my interests were too commercial and they denied me entrance because at the time they were only taking people who did like uh, who wanted to make experimental films, or films that had meaning and not, you know, you had to write an essay on a film. And you, I was told after the fact, you need to write an essay to get into the film program about one of the professor's films. And I was just like, I saw one of those professor's films. It was terrible. It had like, you know, <laughs> it, it had like reverse childbirth and Nazis marching and, and game shows and all intercut. I mean, it was like God awful. And it was just like, why would I write about that? So I wrote, you know, one essay on the on the thing. The first year I, I applied, the second year I applied, I wrote it on Blade Runner. Needless to say, I didn't get it. So I went to a local community college at the time called Capuano, which then is, it had a media program, which was going to teach you how to be like an AV guy at a university or a college. That was what the program did. But what it had was access to equipment. So myself and several other people in my year and the year after all became editors, all became, you know, because we got in right at the, at the change from cutting on film to cutting uh, on tape to cutting digitally. And that's, that's where, that's what allowed us to, to sort of jump the queue. You know, having old film editors say, ah, you guys are just a bunch of button pushers. You know, you're not real editors. So, well, I, I beg to differ. You know that, but that mindset is always if you don't, you don't change, you die. Sort of thing. So that's how you know it started. And using yeah. that gear and then getting an opportunity to, you know, volunteering, doing some free work, and uh, for an editor friend of mine who's now has uh, been a director of television for years, guy named Michael Robeson, um, and who we still work together on different things all of those years later. But he gave me my first job on an HBO show, one of HBO's first shows called The Hitchhiker. Uh, which was an anthology, sort of a sexy anthology, yuppies run amok show in the 80s. And it, you know, it had the wraparound character uh, called, uh, called the Hitchhiker, which played by Paige Fletcher, who would, you know, walk around and, you know, have his thumb out, be picked up, and he'd be in the back of whatever. So and so, so and so, he was the sort of Rod Serling character. And they, you know, they had. Philip Noyce directed some, and Carl Schenkel, and Colin Buxy, and you know a bunch of different big TV names uh, and feature names directed it, and they had all sorts of you know uh, actors of various uh, sizes were in them, and you know it was um, that's how I started, you know, working on that show, and then that led to Twenty One Jump Street, and and you know as an assistant editor, and then MacGyver, and then editing on MacGyver, and blah blah blah. 
And then, and then from MacGyver, I met Wes, Wes Craven on a show called Nightmare Cafe and started working with Wes. Not a bad person to work with, I have to say. So no, well, no, Wes was amazing. I was incredibly <laughs> grateful. I worked for him for almost 20 years and um, until I really, you know, shifted into the directing full time. But I even would go back from time to time to work with him on a few different smaller things near the end there. Like I did a few weeks of my soul to take just for him as they asked. And it was like, sure, of course, I'll come in. Yeah, that's uh, not bad at all. It's not a bad yeah. degree at all. I yeah. suppose that the more you're doing, sort of like you're seeing more of the filmmaking business in action when you're not just in the cutting room, you're actually getting to see what's yeah. going on as well, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, certainly, you know, you, you go to set and you learn you learn a lot about, I certainly look from West particularly, I learned a lot about working with actors uh, in ADR. We would do a lot of, uh, you know, looping where you do post-recording of dialogue with actors and stuff like that, and, you know, directing actors. So I'd always be in all those sessions with him. And then, you know, even I'm back on MacGyver, I first learned, you know, first directed. MacGyver would have like eight days of main unit photography with the actors and then three days of the second unit with all the actors, but Richard Dean Anderson, and then like three days of inserts for all the MacGyverisms. So first thing I ever got to direct was inserts of MacGyverisms. And at one point I had to make a, make a dog disarm a bomb, a bulldog disarm a bomb. They don't do that at all. They, <laughs> They have no interest whatsoever. It doesn't matter how much ham you slather on that bomb. It's not going to do it. So, you know, sort of start with that and you just keep working your way up. Thank you for the bomb disposal tip also. Never get a bulldog involved. Yes, yes. So when, when, when you're faced with that reality and it's just you and a bulldog, no, you can't count on the bulldog for anything. <laughs> Fantastic, because I was just having, having a look at your CV and you obviously worked on um TV show with a bit of a Scottish connection in Highlander, the series. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, I cut three episodes of Highlander. They asked me to come back, but I at that point I moved from Vancouver to Los Angeles, so it didn't make sense because they were cutting in Vancouver, but shooting, splitting their seasons between Paris and because uh, it was a French Canadian co-production between Paris and, and, and Vancouver. But yeah, I cut three episodes of that show, uh, one of which had Nigel Terry, who, you know, who was King Arthur in, in Excalibur in it, which was, which I think was the most exciting part. But yeah, there can be only one a week. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we used to say about the series. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So let's move on to the dogs. Yeah. You mentioned how you got the job there, so yeah. You, were you, I take it then from pretty much from the moment that filming began in January 1996, you'd been getting through the dailies and going through those and pretty much starting assembly pretty quickly. Yeah, I I, um, I actually started a week late because I had to I had to leave the show I was on a couple weeks early, but it meant I had to start a week late by the time you know in order to get notice and blah blah blah. So I started uh, on their week two. I think they shot for like five weeks. Um, and uh, as such, I had, you know, uh, all of the first weeks of dailies waiting for me. I think the first scene I cut was the scene inside the ambulance. And then the one inside uh, when the doctor goes to Grace's house uh, when they, and they come in and, and uh, she's going to check his heart and, and Brian is taking the couch and stuff like that. I think those were the first two scenes. I uh, I cut those in the same day and sent them to Jeff Sachs, the director, who I adored, who I just thought was an amazing director. And this footage was really easy to cut. It was so specifically done. I found, you know, it's just it's like, oh, you, you know, you've done this move in this part of the shot, so clearly that's the part you want us to use. Uh, I think he was... I think he'd worked with other editors in the past who hadn't been able to figure that stuff out and hadn't done that. And it's just kind of like, well, it's all pretty obvious to me. So, but it was, uh, and he allowed me to do, you know, a lot of freedom to do a lot of, you know, to push the editing style of that. You know, I think, I think one of the producers said it was sort of dazzling, but that was, you know, that was very much the intent to make it incredibly energetic. It was energetically shot. It was certainly was energetically performed. There was a real, movement and pace to everything and so um wanting to keep that and in a lot of ways you, you it's really the perfect 
bridge between, you know, uh, Sylvester McCoy and all the years that came before and then Eccleston and everything that came after, the, you know, the movie is, I think, an essential uh, link between that and this and how you get, you know, how you get there from here. Yeah. So tell us a wee bit about, you know, how you work as an editor, because I imagine, of course, the storyboards that have been created for the film to be shot. And yeah. You, as an editor, are you given those to work with, or is it pretty much you've got the shots in and go with your judgment there, and pick up the energy? There, they're in a book. You know, I used to be, you get a line script. So a line script is, is a script supervisor does. So it has a line for each shot, what it's covering, and it has a squiggle for for what's not on them and a straight line for what is on them if it's like close. In the old days, I used to like have those right in front of me. And then by the time I got to Doctor Who, I, I, I don't even look at the paperwork. I find the footage tells you everything it needs to tell you. You know, if you've read the script and you see the footage in front of you, it, it will tell you what it wants to do. Performance is everything, so you cut uh, the way I like to do it is I, I would cut every single reading of every single line back to back and then every single sort of, you know, camera movement or anything like that. And then literally just start knocking things out until until the scene starts to form. Um, and you can show that you're always using the best performance for the moment, regardless of whether there's a mistake or anything like that. It's performance, performance, performance. You know, you could have the best camera move, but the performance isn't as good. You're better to use a worse camera move and a better performance. You know, the actors and that that is all that matters in, you know, in my opinion and that stuff. Um, other people may tell you differently, but it's they're weird. idiots. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not. I take them. But yeah, so so you so you become a very much a slave to that, and that allows you, you know, with that mindset, it allows you to really get things honed really quickly, and 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 then having cut a MacGyver where we had very little time, I'd always adopted the idea of you have to cut everything the first time, like you're never going to get to go back. You know, a lot of people like feature editors and stuff in the old days, and even some now, they, they cut these sort of languid assemblies that are long and, and whatever, and they leave all this fat in, so the director came in and trimmed that. I would cut it like, I would cut everything really tight. I would always put music on it. I always put sound effects on it. I always put, you know, you got to dress it up as if it, so it feels finished. I started doing that with, well, before Wes, but mostly with, with Wes, and what he found is that he could then take the, the, those tapes as they showed up, those scenes, and he could show them to the crew, he could show them to the cast, show them to the, to the suits if he needed to. And what it did is, is create confidence on the part of everybody who was working on it and everybody who was paying for it. So they would leave him alone to create the best thing and give him the support because they all felt they were being part of something that was was much more elevated than they expected, just by base of presentation. Presentation is key for those things. It's fascinating because it must have been so exciting for you knowing that you were the first person to see the finished version of each scene as it came together. <laughs> as a it was. It was great. It was. It was. It was great seeing. You know, in this in particular, you know, see, getting those scenes with. Paul McGann as, as the doctor, he, he was so the perfect choice. I just, I thought he had captured such a, such a, you know, all the history of the character, yet felt like a, like a, like a great contemporary version of it at the same time, which I think is, you know, it's a tricky thing to do, but it also, you know, speaks to how he has continued to this day to portray that character you know whether through big finish and things like that you know that that character is still part of his lexicon it's not anything he oh yeah i did that you know 20 years ago it's like i did that last week uh, which is amazing you know and that's a testament to him more than anything and and how he and you could see it in his performance how he found all the nuance of that character and made it his own I've, uh, of course, got these images in my head of film editors, you know, from what we've seen, you know, pictures of and the, you know, like the stereotypical images that you would see ironically in films. Is it like that where you've got the, you've got the negs there and you're cutting, sticking them together? Because I did that. I mean, that that's the old way. We, we were cutting this on, uh, 
think we cut this on the Lightworks. Um, so that's a digital system. It has sort of a... Um, I used to have one. My son has it, actually. Um, it's a, a sort of almost like a cam interface, uh, a shuttle control. But you're it's, you're just looking at... You've got two different screens. You've got one screen over here that has all the different you know shots you're going to use. You open them in bins and galleries and things like that. On the other half, you have you know a play monitor, a record monitor... So the record monitors where you're committing your edit, and then you have a timeline that you can manipulate the timeline. The nice thing about the the Lightworks, which which I think Avid bought out and then basically killed, uh, they were main competitors for a lot of years, uh, is that you could how you could toggle back and forth and open up all the tracks and slide the tracks was fantastic. It was very much like a film thing, but. No, I, I, you know, even when we were cutting back on MacGyver and things like that, we were cutting on, on the uh, old Montage Ones, which were an editing system that only had two audio tracks. The, the Lightworks had eight, the Heavyworks had, had uh, the Lightworks had four, Heavyworks had eight, I can't remember. Uh, now you can have as many checks as you want. Um, but you can, uh, it, it would shuttle 17 beta max decks so not beta cam beta max so you would load you'd divide an hour worth of show into four different sets of 17 and they would queue up and shuttle and just try and play so you you would you know you would hit play and then it would say 456 seconds before it would play you know a minute and a half so you would chat and you would learn things and you would, you know, do things because you would always be in, end up being in with the producers or the directors and stuff like that. But that's, you know, that wait time allowed me to learn so much. And, allowed, you know, that wait time is what built my friendship with Wes Craven because in the wait time we would just, I would just grill them about questions. Well, why did you do this? And why did you do that? And how did that happen? And what was that decision? And where did you do this? And I had seen, you know, uh, all his previous films. And so I would ask him, so on that film, will you, you know, and he would talk about this, that, and the other thing. We just chatted all the time. It's amazing just to, to learn from one of the masters of cinema. That's, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and be so sort of naive to not take it for granted, but just be like, well, we're sitting here. Let's just chat about whatever. And he'd be doing his crossword and we would just chat about all sorts of stuff. Do you remember there being any scenes that were particularly problematic, you know, in terms of, you know, fast edits and things like that? Because well, it's yeah, so brilliant, they, it's so pacey. There was nothing problematic um, in terms of uh, how we put it together. I think the biggest challenge for, for Jeff was just having the time to shoot everything he needed to shoot to tell the story with the, that was going to have the energy he wanted to have. Um, I know that was sort of challenges and they, you know, he and Paul again and, and uh, uh, Daphne would uh, rehearse on the, on the weekends and, you know, it's especially all the scenes near the end when it was just, you know, Daphne and the doctor and, you know, when they're trying to get the TARDIS back up and running. So that, you know, that once we sort of found that sort of fast, fast cut rhythm to certain sequences, um, Jeff completely embraced it and, and, and everybody else seemed to that we just went forward with that. You know, the, the, I guess the big challenge came in once the BBC saw it, because I think there had been some sort of, I don't know if it was a school shooting or something. That's right. Um, there, was a, there was an incident uh, in Dunblane, uh, yeah, Scotland. Yeah. So, so that led to, you know, a, a pretty, uh, the, the parts with, with Lee at the beginning, the shootout with the Chinese gang, that recut very specifically because of that incident. It was originally a lot more violent. That shootout was, yeah, there was a lot more in your face and Lee was a lot more of a badass in that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think EG's- He wasn't just the, the nice companion. He was, you know, uh, he was he was worthy of being the master's companion with what happened there, but that we toned way down to what you see. Um, and even when I look at it now and go, fuck, that's still bad. God. <laughs> I mean, wait, yeah, it shows you that I clearly not, you know, discounting Mighty Dex 3, but I've worked on a lot of genre films. So <laughs> I heard to that. But that really was the, that was the only sequence. Everything else, you know, was just about 
trying to make some of the visual effects work, which, which you know, or that was early days of CG and stuff like that. So, so we, you know, we were acting in a lot of faith uh, with that stuff. You know, I, I, I think there was a temp version of the transformation between uh, Sylvester McCoy and Paul McGann that was better than what's in the final movie. I felt what was in the final movie was a little anemic to the temp version, which was a little crazier, but that might have been, you know, for other reasons. But certainly, you know, all the intercutting and, and you know, Jeff made such amazing use of reflections I love the intercutting of, you know, the Frankenstein, the original Universal Frankenstein, and, uh, and you know, when, when the Eighth Doctor is fully regenerated and comes out, I thought that was all sensational. It was interesting, that same clip, I think, we, we used in Scream, which I did right afterwards, which was sort of funny. And you notice the same thing, is that the, there's a thunderclap when, when uh, Clive, whatever his name, who played the doctor in that uh you know plays dr frankenstein in the clip he says now i know what it and then it goes to his thunderclap whatever so what he's really saying is now i know what it feels like to be a god and even the 1930 whatever censors had problem with that uh and change it out but but having watched that clip so many times during the cutting of that scene at dr who it's just like oh, that's what he's really saying <laughs> um so I, I thought that was actually sort of fun in that life creation moment and you know it's a testimony to jeff that he used that so well it must have been so exciting for you to see the final version as well when everything came together with effects music mm. the lot oh, and then of course oh, your yeah, own yeah. name in the credits right at the oh, start it was fantastic yeah they see that at the beginning and there's oh god yeah no it was thrilling it was thrilling to that it's thrilling to hear the theme song i was bummed that they could only use the theme song at the beginning and the end and they and, and the bbc wouldn't give them the license to use it anywhere throughout anywhere else in the in the show um in the in the body of the movie which i always felt that that was a a disappointing bureaucratic choice for you know the the company that actually owns the rights to it to impose that limitation on the music felt like why are you doing that i'm sure there's you know music has its own rights issues so I, I don't know how those that tie in but that that restriction always felt really sort of like what why why are you doing that because certainly when he you know when when Paul McGann's there saying who am I with all those reflections or like that you really love the actual Doctor Who theme yeah. to echo yeah, with you type sound yeah definitely yeah but uh, that was forbidden uh, based on the, the great brains that were in charge yeah, frustrating. <laughs> a, a disappointment, but I think that mm. it's... I mean, it works without it, but it would have worked even, you know, it would have given you, I think, more goosebumps. If it had. Yep, definitely. It would have had that extra little bit. So you mentioned earlier that the next job you did after this was Scream, and that must have been quite something. That, did you realise you were working on something that was going to become so famous and iconic? Uh, no, I, I mean, Scream was, was, uh, it was a great script, you know, it's one that Wes had turned down, I think, multiple times before we did it. I remember reading it early on, and he just said, just read the opening scene, you know, which is the Casey Becker sequence, the Drew Barrett sequence, and going like, holy shit, that's amazing, and it's like, yeah, it's too violent, I don't want to do it. And then, uh, after Vampire in Brooklyn, you know, we got offered it again, and, and then was like, you know, I, I think he told them make me an offer i can't refuse so they did <laughs> um, and you know it was a the first week of dailies and, and i've told the story many times and i know west told as well is you know was the drew barrymore secret and said that and the suits hated it hated it hated the dailies told west he was a hack he was somebody with no talent and and was barely a tv guy and then i cut it together sent it to west he had one music note and I, uh, we conformed it on film and then we sent it to New York and they watched it and went, oh my God, we're so wrong. You're absolutely right. This is brilliant. What else can we give you? What else do you need to make the movie better? And so that, you know, that's how that, that went the first week. But, it, you know, it was an eight week shoot. I think after the end of week five, the DP ended up leaving due to, you know, they had a lot of focus issues because it was anamorphic 
and uh, they fired the the focus puller and the DP as well if you can fire him I'm gonna go too and so it was like you know see you later be careful and then Peter Deming who was um, uh, who had shot I think for both Sam Raimi and um, David Lynch came on to finish the movie and then did the other screen movies that West did and you know the, the director's cut was really quick I think we did it in like four weeks and then uh, normally you have ten and then we showed it to the producers who were very nervous and I remember even Kevin Williams and saying well I think it's a really good mystery I'm not sure it's scary but that's when you're inside it and you know every beat that's going to happen it's hard to predict that um, and then we went and showed it to like 400 and some odd people in New Jersey uh, preview and two minutes in the second the killer on the boys in the vo- Roger Jackson said the, the killer's voice says uh, I want to know who I'm looking at and you have 400 people go oh. it was like oh shit this might work better than we and none of us had any idea it was going to work as well as it did and then when it opened you know it opened opposite Beavis and Butthead to America one fine day the Michelle Pfeiffer George Clooney movie something else can't remember what it was and and it didn't open to huge numbers you know we, we everybody thought oh jesus you know you don't open a scary movie at christmas time but that was you know the dimension films guys idea but then the second week it made more money than the first which is an unheard of thing and then the word of mouth just built and built and built i remember seeing it in toronto because i was editing i'd already finished my work on that movie by the time it came out and was editing uh mimic for for guillermo del toro and uh seeing it right over the new year's weekend in toronto with a packed house uh was very interesting to see people's reactions that had paid for it um as opposed to like a preview audience which just can be a little you know, they're there to have an opinion as opposed to somebody who's paying to have a good time. That's a different thing. And just the, the how much they loved it uh, was great. It was yeah. great. And how scared they were by it and how they read so much more into it. You know, yeah. the, the, everybody was truly a suspect, as, as Randy says, Jamie Kennedy says in the movie. Yeah. The uh, thing I wondered was, how did it feel having your work satirized so brilliantly at the start of Scary Movie? I had no problem with that. That bugged Wes, though. Wes thought, because they aped it, like, so shot for shot sort of thing, he was just like, well, they should pay me a directing fee for that movie because they're just stealing my work. He was a little annoyed by it. You know, he had good humor and everything about it as well, but he he thought that it was... uh, not a movie, scary movie, didn't have its own merits. It was solely dependent on the success of Wes's movie uh, and that which Kevin wrote. So, so I think that in a lot of ways, it was like seeing a, a cinematic version of the old Mad Magazine parody, right? Spoofs and stuff. Yeah. Um, and if that's how I looked at it, so I actually thought it was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I totally get where Wes came from, especially given all the challenges of making Scream and how hard it was and had, putting up with that to have these people that get away with something that was so such an irreverent take on his work that he had, you know, sweat blood over. I think, yep. I think he found that was just like, yeah, not totally cool. Yeah. It's, I was, I, cause when I watch it, I still think imitation, it's a sincerest form of flattery because they've obviously they've yeah. watched that over and over again to get it. The timing of it. I mean, it's the whole thing. I want to see what your insides look like. Turn to page 56. Yeah. It's superb. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really clever, but it's, I, I totally get where he came from yeah. with that. You know, it's just like, oh, well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, uh, certainly don't condemn your 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 feelings about it. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of that also, you know, is stems from dealing with you know the the Weinstein's and stuff like that, and all the and all the sort of weight that they put on you mm-hmm. to have them then take your work and parody it so they can just put a bunch of money in their pockets you know it's like why the writers are in strike now and things like yeah. that you know it's just like hey wait a minute buddy 
you you should be sharing some of this gold because you wouldn't have it if it's the other thing that exists. Yeah, yeah. So. Now, of course, we're going to skip forward to the year two thousand, and I am walking along the street, and then a bus goes past me. Dracula two thousand. Directed by Patrick Lussier, it says very clearly on the side of a bus in Glasgow, in Scotland. And I was just thinking, oh my God, that is so good. Because obviously I recognise your name straight away, having obviously you know watched as a fan right. of Scream and Scream films and, and seen your name on those as well. But then how did that come about, getting to do your first cinematic feature? Well, it was, you know, Dracula 2000 came out of... I think it was an opportunity that, you know, for all the, the craziness that, that Dimension Films and Bob Weinstein, um, who I worked with a lot, and I only worked with Harvey a couple times, and, and that's a good thing. But Bob basically gave me the opportunity to direct like uh, Prophecy 3, The Ascent, the, the little direct-to-video movie, and we had Christopher Walken for the, you know, before that, and then the opportunity to do Dracula 2000, which they had been wanting to make something with that title based on Dracula 1972, you know, the, it wasn't based on that, but that idea, they loved the title, even if they didn't totally trust the movie. And, uh, you know, being of that camp and, and being somebody who did a lot of recutting for them on things, they were very, like, we don't want you to go work for anybody else. So we want to give you a chance to direct. And then we want to give you a chance to direct this. And then Joel Sasson and I came up with an idea for Dracula 2000. You know, they, they, they had the title, they had nothing else. So we came up with the original story. Uh, we came up with the Judas angle, uh, the thieves, the original version of Dracula 2000 was thieves who knew what they were stealing. They were stealing Dracula's body to milk it and sell immortality for a million bucks a dose. That was the original concept. And, um, you know, the Johnny Lee Miller's character uh, was somebody who was the protege vampire hunter of Van Helsing. Van Helsing was a total Dracula blood addict. You know, all those, all those things that we had set out to make we had a good script in april we had pretty much made every character and it's stupid by the time we got <laughs> to, to june when we shot thanks to you know the the dimension brought in a different writer who just dummied everything up it was just like and johnny was hired to play the smart version of his character and then ended up playing this sort of less smart version of his character and he was just like, you know, look, I don't, I don't even know what this is anymore, but I trust you. I'll, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So his line in the movie of uh, never, ever fuck with an antiques dealer was a joke that he would say on set based on how he had gone from being, you know, the protege vampire hunter to a guy who sells antiques. And we wrote it into the movie. So it's, many people try to take credit for that line, but that is absolutely 100% John Lee Miller who came up with that line. And Joel has a thing he likes to say as we did so work, as they would bring in these other writers to do a version, and then Joel and I would try and rewrite that version to make it work. You know, but with <sighs> keeping the essence of what they had been requested to do. And Joel would always say, you know, we have to love every mutant child. <laughs> um, so... Uh, that's what it became and we had six months from the first day of photography till it was in the theaters that's a and very quick turnaround yeah you know and and it wasn't until the week before we started shooting that we got to have jerry butler um cast in the movie there was a different actor uh, who was going to play omar Epps's part who uh, they demanded be replaced, not because the actor wasn't good, but because they had a standing deal with Omar and they would have to pay him a million dollars anyways. So they needed to put him in a movie. Uh, Omar's great. I loved working with Omar. He was a total pro. Uh, I worked with him twice. I would work for them again any day of the week. Uh, it may not have been a million dollars. It may have been less than that. So, um, you know, But it was a significant amount of money. So they they forced me to go tell this this other actor who was wonderful, and it all blew up in their faces. It was a huge political disaster for them to do that. And I remember literally being on tears with the studio, you know, in tears, talking about afterwards about you know how what a total chicken shit thing it was for them to have me do it. 
when they should, if they wanted to do this, they should go, come and do it. And then Fallout, you know, one half of the, the Miramax side was pushing for a different actor to play Dracula. And Jerry had come in and auditioned on the very first day of auditions in, in early April. And then he had gone off to be Attila uh, uh, in Lithuania to you. And I kept bringing him back up and somehow Jerry got my personal cell phone and he would call me up all the time from Lithuania. Oh, I hear you're casting so-and-so. Don't cast them. Um, I, that's a terrible Scottish accent. I apologize. It's all right. It's better. Uh, Jerry, if, I was with, all right. if I was with Jerry, I would do it better because I can <laughs> mimic him when I'm with him. But um, but I'm, I, have, I, have, I haven't talked to him for a few months. But um, when all the shit went down from that, they said, you know, who do you want for Dracula? I said, you know, Jerry. And they were like, well, we'll give you Jerry because of this thing. We shouldn't have done it. It was a huge mistake. We're sorry. We will give you Jerry. That was Bob who did that. So Bob let me cast Jerry because I had that sort of thing. So, you know, that's how he got to be in the movie. We had to delay the scenes with Dracula till later because he still had to finish Attila. You know, they we literally got him straight off the set. They were shooting extra scenes with him earlier, you know, in order to get him out so he could come to us. So. And of course, you also mentioned Johnny Lee Miller. This is a completely useless trivial fact that Johnny's first TV role was in Doctor Who when he was eight. He was in Peter Davison's really? story, Kinda. He's one of the children, or he shot oh, at maybe eight, wow. going on nine, and he appears in the background as one of the small children in Kinda. Oh, that's funny. Oh, yeah, I, I remember Kinda. I, I had no idea about that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, no, Johnny was great. I, I loved working with Johnny. I, I, the whole cast was lovely, and, and, and the crew was great. And, you know, we had Peter Powell, who had shot, uh, who was the DP of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I had been a fan of his uh, work on uh, Bride with White Hair. He had done, like, The Killer and stuff for John Woo. And, and somehow I got his phone number. He called him up blind in Hong Kong, woke him up, Said, hi, you don't know me, but I'm, you know, this, blah, 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 and, and, and I'm directing this movie. And would you like to, and, and eight days later, we met in Toronto. I, and he was amazing. We did call him the dictator of photography. I mean, Peter scared a lot of people. <laughs> uh, but he and I got along great and, and had a great experience in, in creating those visuals and things like that for that movie. Fantastic. Obviously, I really enjoyed it because I, I went to see it on the back of your name being on it. So... I'm oh totally well, thank it. you. I, I there's so much I love about that movie. The, the 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 making of it was was like you know getting pulled backwards through a 16 millimeter uh, projector. Um, <laughs> but it, there's a lot I, I am very grateful for for the, the experience. You know, working with Christopher Plummer was amazing. Uh, uh, the late great Christopher Plummer. Uh, you know, having him as Ben Helsing, uh, Jerry, and you know all those guys who played the thieves, and you know, and Omar was. Awesome. I love working with that one. As I said, I've worked with him a couple times now. You know, all that stuff was great. The speed of which we made it was hard because we didn't, there was, there was never enough time. You know, we wrote, a, we finally had a really good, you know, we had a better script than we were allowed to shoot. We, you know, shot a, a better movie than we had time to edit because it was so quick. You know, we just cut the best movie we had at a time. There's so many things that were cut out of that movie that, you know, if I was, had a chance to go back now, I would. I would drastically change a lot of things uh, and reincorporate things and things make more sense. You know, Van Helsing had original, a very different death scene. But I remember Chris sending me a very angry letter that his death scene had been cut out. They trying to tell me that it was, it was contractual. It wasn't. But, um, <laughs> and he called me up while we were mixing to, to basically chew me out that I had ruined his death scene. It's just like, I didn't ruin it. I, it was me who cut it out, man. It was that was an insistence on of others who didn't want that four minute death scene. And instead, you were I, you just put that mask on that dummy and stuffed it under a bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, he, he, it was. Uh, I, I I always felt bad that I had disappointed Mr. Plummer. But uh, thank God they uh, kept him alive at the end of Sound of Music. Exactly, exactly. Lord knows that he would have written that some some letter to them saying, <laughs> I was supposed to be shot in a blah, blah, blah. Um, but he, he was great. He was a total pro and really fun and had all these amazing stories of things he'd done. Uh, we never talked about Sound of Music. That was not a thing 
he wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about Silent Partner a lot, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a Canadian no, film no. with him and Elliot Gould and Susanna York. Uh, John Candy has a small part in it. It's a, it's a bank heist film where Christopher Plummer's the bank robber and he's great and he's it's right before Christmas and he's dressed as Santa Claus and he comes into the mall branch and demands they put the money in the bag and Elliot Gould is the teller and Elliot Gould steals the money himself and so you know it says you know he's robbing me of something and so suddenly it's just like so Elliot Gould is he has one up Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer plays a psychopath. He is so good in it. If you've never seen it, it is great. It and it's a movie sweet. that he quite he quite loved. And, and when I got him talking about that, he would, you know, we, we're all friendly and it's all great. <laughs> um, but just don't shoot the extras before it's his, you know, before before him. And so, oh, you're shooting extras. You should be shooting me. I'm tired. I'm old. <laughs> he was right. But, yeah, and I'm most impressed with your office with um, some posts behind you. There's my bloody. Oh Valentine. yeah, yeah. I have my my have my docu- Doctor Who uh, parking uh, pass from from the movie. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, here, here. Let me unplug you and let me let's go like this. That looks fantastic. Oh wow! So that's the parking pass, and that's the the one of the stills they gave us. You know, yep. for the little presentation they did. That's amazing. There's the cat, <laughs> which I told you existed. <laughs> you did. You did. They always insist on being around. That's yeah. fantastic. I love it. That's something I'd never seen before. Which you yeah. To- so that, that you put that in your in your in your car window, right? So the productions have those. Yeah. So you so when you pull up, so so That's I, I found that in a uh, in I think my old binder that I had from that show. And I tossed the binder with all the notes and crap in it, um, no. but kept that. Yeah. Oh um, God, I'd have, I'd have killed, I'd have taken that off. I, if, if I ever, if I ever find some of that stuff still in storage, if you're ever finding it again, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. I will, uh-huh. I will happily pay to take it off your hands. <laughs> okay. It's, and it's not going to pay for the shipping. It'll be fine. It's just because I want it because I just love to something like that. Is a beautiful thing. Of course, when we were chatting by email, you mentioned, and obviously earlier on when we were chatting, you mentioned. Big Finish. So how did your interest in Big Finish begin? I remember stumbling across that back, I think, you know, uh, when they had their first sort of collection of eight, like Storm Warning, uh, I think eight eight things, not the eight doctor, but Storm Warning, and I can't remember that, it was with, with Char- Charlie Pollard. Yep. yep. Um, and uh, discovering that, I was like, oh my God, I have to hear that. And, and buying the, that CD box set. Mm-hmm. And uh, hearing that, and being so thrilled to hear Paul McGann as the eighth, as the Eighth Doctor, and to experience those adventures, and then from that, you know, went and got many of the other ones uh, along the uh, as it went. Uh, you know, the Lucy Miller sequence, uh, <sighs> big run, I think, is amazing. Amazing, yep. You know, all that stuff, I think, is so good. And listened to all those, and then went back and found some of the ones in the in the middle and in between, and yep. And obviously, I've, I've listened to some of the, the you know, the Libchenka stuff and the, the more recent ones and, uh, you know, the Dark Eyes of Ruth Bradley and stuff like that. Yes. So, I, that certainly, I've I, 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 I listened to a lot of them. You I'm not exactly. totally up to date because there's so much. Well, um, fair to, I think it's fair yeah. to say that you, you, you pretty much know your stuff. I mean, I was at the recording of one of the ones that's due out this December at Back in Mika. Mm. I've only been in the studio twice because I do the Big Finish in-house magazine. Vortex, oh. and um, oh, I didn't so, know that. I've certainly read that magazine. Well, there we go. We've, yeah, we've, yeah, well, we've connected without no, even it's, knowing. It's like we're finally meant to speak. <laughs> it was. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. Um, so it was. You know, it was just lovely to do that and just see them. And um, how Paul's lovely, and just his son, uh, Sonny, is now sort of working with Big Finish as well, and sort of managing yeah. the studios. So. He, and having, oh, of course, he was great. out in set many, many moons ago. So it's it's nice to know that you sort of uh, that you've reconnected and sort of you're sort of he's still a part of your oh, life in a I, 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 way. Uh, absolutely. I, I remember listening to um, the, the the first I think it was the first Time War thing back in in uh, it would be the summer of nineteen. Uh, oh. Listening to that, I think it had been out for a little while. But I was in New Orleans. I was on prep doing an episode of the Purge TV series and wandering the streets of New Orleans, listening to that, 
was fantastic. It was it was great because it it's such a great escapist thing. The, the the production values are so good. You know, I've listened to so many; they blend together a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Chimes at midnight. That's a great oh, one. The great Christmas Eve ghost story. So good. Yeah, yeah. Prisoners, prisoners of the sun. That's another one. I could, yeah, uh, another Lucy one. I don't want to be confusing, confusing it with Tintin, uh, which I might be. <laughs> so I think there's a prisoners of the sun there too. It is prisoners. Um, of the sun. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By Eddie Robson. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, you know, there's just such a, you know, such a great character, and to keep him going, and and the the enigma of you know the the of the doctor and his adventures and his earnestness to do right you know he's sort of the ultimate jiminy cricket you know the conscience of, yeah. of the universe and yeah. and the cost that that has for him it's amazing it's you amazing been, an amazing character yeah you must have been so excited when night of the doctor dropped because we get to see the doctor on screen and this oh, time you God, didn't know yeah. what it was, was happening it was, uh, yeah yeah it was it was that was the best part <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, not yeah, not not the one you're looking for, or waiting for, or thinking of, or whatever the line is. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, oh, and I love seeing him again at the uh, you know in the end of the Jody Whittaker run. And, yep. Uh, I would love to see him come back and do more on screen because he's he's such he's you know got such a a wonderful performance I, I you know I, I I ridiculously do have my uh, yes you've got the action uh, figure yeah there you go <laughs> yeah, I even have a, the older one as well but the older one's in a, is in a, yep. it's in a well, box I am a ridiculously uh, uh, big uh, yeah. uh, fan of that and, and yeah I just say that's one of my favorite jobs I've ever done was cutting the Doctor Who movie yeah uh, I think think back of it think back on it very often but, yeah was glad to see any Eric Roberts master make a return to the big finish world. Yes, uh, he's uh, uh, and he's loving it, embracing it with his own series. Yeah, yeah, which I think is great. I think that's, you know, I think that's the big finish world uh, allows so much expansion uh, of all the, you know, all the little threads get to leap out. Um, I even love their, you know, their Space 1999 version. It's awesome. I remember yeah. growing up in that show as a kid as well, you know, watching Space 1999, UFO, and things like that. And their version of it is like, oh, well, this is what, you know, that show should have been. It's yeah. so much better than the original, which, you know, suffered from the time. Yes, that's a very <laughs> polite way of putting budgetary restraints to yes. an excuse. The time. Yes, yeah. yeah the, like the, the pre-disco the pre fury. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Of course, Patrick, it would be very rude of me and remiss not to ask what hmm. you're up to at the moment and, of course, where people can find you on the interweb because, of course, that's how I uh, got in touch with you with your uh, webpage. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have an Instagram thing, Patrick. Blue CA, I think it's just that. I don't have a blue check mark because I refuse to pay for any of that shit because I think it's whatever. Um, um, so there's that. And uh, I'm finishing a movie um, uh, with uh, Dylan Sprouse and Mason Gooding and Deachin Lockman uh, and Megan Stunt uh, right now that uh, we shot last year in Boston. And we're just uh, waiting on the last few visual effect shots. We we have a couple of incredibly complicated, so they've been they've taken almost a year to do, which is which is a uh, an action movie that takes place on the Tobin Bridge in Boston, um, but was really fun to make, and it, it's currently titled Aftermath. That title may change, as I think there's 25 other movies called Aftermath. <laughs> um, so I think since I started the movie uh, a year ago, last January, I've been trying to suggest other titles, but uh, those haven't. <laughs> we haven't found one that everybody likes yet. But it's a uh, yeah, uh, you know, Mason, who was in the last two screen movies, uh, uh, is is in it, and, and Dylan Sprouse, and you know, his, his, who was a child actor and is now an actor in his own right, but grown up, and, and both are amazing in it, really great action movie. And then the year before that, I did a movie called Play Dead, which I think came out uh, earlier this year with Bailey Madison and, and uh, Jerry O'Connell which is uh, a little more murder and mayhem about the perils of home surgery. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, sort of. I was about to say, I work for the, the NHS over here in the National uh -huh. Health Service, so um, as, a, as a communications officer. 
and I was about to say, please don't do surgery at home. Go to your experts, no matter Go how in. much pain you're in. Go, speak yeah. to the professionals. Absolutely. So this isn't really home surgery. It, 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 it's uh, it's a coroner who, by chance, is is uh, keeping people alive in order to sell their parts. But you know, that's it, yeah. It's yeah. It's the feel good movie of the summer. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something uh, Cybermen would be involved with. Yes, 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 and, and, and but it's a you know it was a it's a not a huge budget movie. It was quite, but it was great fun to make, and, and the the actors were all wonderful. And Jerry O'Connell is the villain, is a delightful villain, and uh, Bailey Madison is a, is the lead, and it's great. You know, it's the final girl. So. Yep, and of course you do have your website as well. Yes, yes, PatrickLucia.com. Yes, it hasn't been updated in a while. Uh, there will be an update update coming. But thank you for thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> uh, my wife would be would be most annoyed that that I forgot to bring that up. <laughs> we'll not mention that to her. I'm sure she won't be listening. And if you are Mrs. Yes. Lucia, it was uh, just yeah. a joke because <laughs> yeah. it, was, it really has been updated constantly all the time. You know, she's the one who actually updates it. So. Oh, damn it! Uh, yeah, she designed it and did everything. So because yep. <laughs> uh, uh, Patricia is her name, but she's, oh, she's wow. brilliant. Oh, that's quite nice, Patrick and so, Patricia. Yes, it is a thing. So, so she's she's she, she actually is Patricia's assistant because because we realize that it, it shouldn't be Patrick and Patricia Lucia. That would be quite. That would be more than than that would just be too close. So, it's getting a bit yes, Glenner Glenda here. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I didn't mean to compare uh, you to Ed Woods. Can I just clarify? No, just, no, that's okay. You are not Ed Woods. You know, there's the, there's people who've compared me to to Uber Bowl, so not that I like that, but they certainly have done it. So, um, you know, you just sort of roll with it. You know, oh. the internet is the world's biggest sandbox where people just say whatever they want. Yeah, with no filters. Anyway, yeah. Patrick, it's been brilliant. Thank you for joining us in Pieces of Eight and sharing your memories because it's been a real pleasure. Yes, it's been, been great to speak with Kenny and, and thank you very much. And it's been wonderful to, to, to revisit the uh, the Eighth Doctor and uh, who, who, for obvious reasons, is my personal favourite based on having been part of, the, part of his uh, birth. Huge thanks to Patrick for his time. And wow! Someone who's fully invested in The Eighth Doctor with the action figures that he's got and he showed me and Big Finish Audios in his collection at home. Now, I did mention earlier action figures, did I not? You certainly did. I'm yep. on Tenterhooks. Yes, well, because Patrick doesn't have the full set. He's got a TV movie doctor. And I just thought, well, wouldn't it be quite nice to start yep. to say thanks for his time to nip out to my local B&M, which I did about an hour and a half ago from before we started recording this and I've bought him a three pack with the TV movie Doctor with this slightly more gold waistcoat the Night of the Doctor Doctor and of course the Big Finish version with his bag which is all my responsibility thank you very much fans and he has now got that and it will be making its way to his home in Canada tomorrow so I thought it was quite a nice thing to do just to say thanks and He's just such a lovely fella. That's lovely. You wouldn't he deserves that. Yeah, I think so. On behalf of us all. Yeah, and I think that it's just incredible that he is the fan and he's bought so many big Finnish audios. You know, he knows exactly who Lucy Miller is, Charlie Pollard, Kerr is, Divergent Universe, everything. He's very much one of us. Do you think he'll open the pack and say, three Time Lords, the same Time Lord? <laughs> thing is, I think you'll get that reference when he hears this episode. So, yeah, I would not be surprised in the slightest. But yeah, that's a good gag. I like that. I wish I thought of it. Damn you. Damn you, Matt Michael. Girl. You heard it here first. So, remember, if you've enjoyed today's Pieces of Eight, or indeed liked any episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or your podcast provider, as it means more people can find our episodes. And it will make Kenny and, by extension, me very happy. And if you don't leave a review, it will make Kenny very sad and angry, in fact. And you wouldn't like him when he's angry. <laughs> no, I turn bright red. I don't go blue or green, because <laughs> in the west of Scotland, that's got implications. Uh, so I'll go bright red, since Aberdeen are my football team anyway. And yeah, I would be so angry. 
and my voice will go like this. Not Partick? I thought you'd be a Partick. Oh no, not Partick. There's a Queen's Park, or my Glasgow team if I've had one. I was a ball boy for Queen's Park for two years at Hampden Park, and on one occasion I headbutted somebody live on television. This is, yeah. um, Matt's pulling a face so you can't see at home, except for our YouTube viewers, of course. And uh, it was quite, uh, yeah, it was, I sneezed and uh, the, the TV camera was on the tunnel at Hamden before the Scotland v France game. Scotland won 2 0, Mo Johnson got two goals in 1989. And I sneezed and headbutted Matt McCartney, put my head down, but unfortunately my head caught his forehead when I was trying to put my head down so I wouldn't hit him with snot. And this was captured live on the television, so I looked like I was being. An aggressive, typically Scottish person. But I, 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 I was just trying to I was just trying to think of what Missy says in Death in Heaven, which is oh it's just another ranting Scotsman. <laughs> That's it. Either that or Dr. Chang <laughs> I was I um, really sounded very Glaswegian there, not my usual self. It's very Glaswegian, it's kind of scary, it's cool. I once missed my train stop when I used to work in Glasgow at Charing Cross, in the Glaswegian Charing Cross, mm-hmm. the proper Charing Cross, and ended up in Partick. Oh my um, word. So, yeah. I'm glad you're okay. Do you know, I work about 10, maybe 12 minutes walk from Charing Cross Station now, and when I'm in the office, so there we go. If only I could go back in time and work for Healthcare Improvement Scotland back then, and then could say hello and we could go out and chat McGann all day. That's <sighs> true. Oh well. Anyway chances sliding doors matt sliding doors um but of course if you've enjoyed it you can follow the podcast on twitter we don't call it x it's still twitter we're at piece of debate and we've got a facebook group too so feel free to send us a request to join it find out what we've got coming up as well as some general chit chat and we're going to be back next week with another pieces of eighth world exclusive yeah yep that's probably not overhyping it i think it's fair to say we're going to be talking about the Lost Eighth Doctor Adventure book from the BBC, Freaks. This is a book that was originally scheduled as the 35th book from the BBC and was due to be written by Rebecca Levine, but ultimately it fell away from the schedules and nothing is known about it until now. Matt, will you come back next week to discuss it with me? Wild horses couldn't stop me. Excellent. Well, we'll go away and read the the information that we have on it and the, the existing things that there are. We've got the synopsis and we've got the outline and yeah, we'll have a look over that and yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And then afterwards, I think we should go to the pub. Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah. But then I that. always agree. I'm never going to decline that offer. Yeah, except when you're running. Well, I can still run to the pub. That's true. But maybe... quicker. Come on my third point. pint by the time you that hey, hey, slow and steady gets there. I wasn't built for speed. <laughs> yes. We'll be back next week. So until then, I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Matt Michael. Bye-bye. Bye.